Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis. The show is Get Your Kids Back Now. The show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives, or to at least <clears throat> show them how to get their necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning. This is Attorney Vince Davis, and today's show, we're going to take a couple calls in the morning. I'm going to talk about a couple topics. And then at 8.30, we have a very special guest. Her name is Attorney Denise Bowden. Ms. Bowden has been an attorney, well, I would guess 10 to 20 years, uh, maybe longer. And she has had an interesting career. Um, For approximately 10 years, she worked as a county counsel representing social workers in juvenile dependency cases uh, in San Diego County. And 10 years is a long time. She now practices um, representing parents and relatives, and she works with our office and helping parents and children get um, get back together, get reunited. So she's gonna be coming in at the 8.30 half hour, and I'll be interviewing her, asking her some questions. Maybe she can uh, tell some stories uh, about what she's doing and maybe some interesting cases that she's working on right now. So let me tell you some uh, interesting things that I've been up to recently. Um, I'm about to do a case, a trial, a, a jurisdictional hearing and a dispositional hearing for a case in Shasta County. Shasta County is up in Northern California near the Oregon border. And it's not the first time I've done a case in Shasta County. Um, But I made a uh, telephonic appearance yesterday uh, on the case. And it seems that um, we have a judge that is seems to be very fair, very interested in what has happened and what has led to these children uh, being removed from the parents' custody. In that case, I'm going to be representing the mother, and there is another local attorney, who a private attorney, who's going to be representing the father. So that should be interesting, and I'll keep you posted on my journeys to Shasta County and uh, how the case is going. Um, From reading the file and talking to the client, it seems that I could be representing these people right in Los Angeles County. It's the same type of, uh, you know, uh, alleged social worker uh, misconduct, social workers exaggerating, not telling the truth. Now, this is according to the client's But, you know, it's the same thing that I hear not only in Los Angeles County, but all over the state of California. 
the interesting thing in this case is that they have removed some children from the parents, but left, I think, one child, the youngest child, uh, still in their home. So, you know, it's one of those cases where how do you find parents are detrimental to some children but not to others? Um, I don't believe that, not that I recall, that there's any allegations of um, physical abuse, you know, but even if there were, you know, most times a social worker says you're beating one kid, you know, we're going to take all the kids. That has a very interesting twist. Also involved a twist in that case is a couple of the kids, I think, are before the juvenile delinquency court. So there's, you know, this dual jurisdiction thing going on between the between the dependency court and the delinquency court. And in this particular county, it's a very small county. I don't believe that the same judge is the, is the delinquency and the dependency judge. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure of it. But I will keep you posted on that. Yesterday in my office, we had a training on evidence. And we were watching some videos from uh, the late great attorney by the name of Irving Younger. Um, he has uh, several videos up on YouTube. And there is a course um, that I highly recommend to all attorneys and perhaps to even you know, some of you that wish to do your own cases on the, it's the basic introduction of evidence uh, or the basics of evidence. And Mr. Younger was a famous law school professor. He was a famous, uh, very well-known in New York, especially a trial attorney. He worked for a period for the U.S. Attorney's Office, I believe in New York. And uh, he's very entertaining. So Irving Younger uh, is his name. Google it. See if you can see some of his videos on YouTube. They're very informative. Um, I think everyone in, in, in the room yesterday learned some <clears throat> basic things about evidence um, that they probably didn't know before. I know I did. And uh, Professor Younger has it as a way of breaking down things in, in bite-sized chunks that are easily understandable and easily recallable, recallable so that you can use them in court. Also, in this past week, um, I was involved in a case, or we're involved here at my firm in a case, representing a parent who is who is being charged with um, I guess it's emotional abuse. I'm not sure that they're alleging anything other than emotional abuse. And they're basing it on a teenager's allegations that his mother, uh, you know, is raising him in a very strict manner. And now the social workers have gotten involved in saying that uh, the mother's actions for being strict are causing the child emotional abuse. I'm not sure that this type of case is the type of case that the legislature or the developers of the 
juvenile dependency system intended to be before the juvenile court. But as many things in the law, things are expanded in, you know, states that are liberal, and California is a liberal state, um, in order to try to further agendas, political and perhaps social social agendas uh, in, in our society. Um, I'm generally, I'm, you know, I'm fairly liberal, but in these types of cases, I seem to be conservative because what what the government is actually doing is actually intruding upon the constitutional rights of parents to raise their children in certain ways. I know that uh, everybody has different ideas about parenting, and the beauty of it is that in America, one of your most important constitutional rights is raising your child the way you believe it should be raised. And when you don't raise your child and you're outside the norm, that, in my opinion, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're abusing the child. And, of course, um, this past week we continue our struggle and our journey in representing relatives who are trying to get children out of foster care into their homes um, and coming up against stories where social workers, you know, are doing everything they can to keep the relative, you know, out of or keep the relative away from the children who are in foster care. I spoke to someone a couple of days ago and the case is, you know, very late in the case and they're heading towards what's called a 366.26 hearing where they plan on terminating the parents' rights and having the, uh, the plan is uh, having the child or children adopted by the current foster parents um, who by all means, uh, by all information, seem to be very you know, good people. It's just that they're not related to the children and there are people uh, out there who want the children who are related. So I see that big fight coming up. In, in that particular case, I'm told that the minor's attorney and the social worker both want the children to remain with the foster home. Um, and when I hear that, knowing that they're relatives that are good people that could raise the children, it, it always bothers me. Um, you know, and people say, well, what's the law? Ah, that's a tough question. The law is very gray in that area. Very, very gray. Okay. We're going to take our first call uh, this morning, and it's going to be from area code 562, ending in 17. Good morning. Good morning. You're, on with Attorney Vince. You're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? A little bit of both, uh, Vincent. Um, I um, really appreciate you taking your time on these Saturdays to uh, have this show. It's been so helpful and beneficial to me and my family, and uh, I also appreciate everything you've done for me. Um, you're a good man. You do a lot to help with lots of people. Um, what I, um, uh, what my situation, how it got me into uh, my situation was an economic disaster and family of, of, of five, and my wife and my three children. Unfortunately, when I lost my job, uh, at my age, age sometimes becomes a factor. So I was having a hard time finding work, and then I went through a personal thing about withdrawal and so forth. And the case that was against me, I 
was very naive. I believe that the government agencies that we have would protect the rights and help you, not try to destroy your family. And what's happened to me is that at that time I had no funds to hire an attorney, which is a bad mistake. For all you people out there listening, it's very important to get yourself a good attorney. Um, even the public defenders are kind of hard. So when I um, uh, got into the case, uh, they uh, I, I was going through a death of my family. In fact, I just lost my sister. And I've been really dealing with that for a couple of weeks and just put her down. So I had lost three of my family, mother, father, and my sister were all in the span of a couple of years. And uh, and the, the sad part is we went through all the single social services and I started to tell them where they're wrong. And, and I was telling them always the truth and the police got involved. Next thing I know, they're duplicating the same thing. And instead of trying to help a family that was in dire straits of need of of aid and food and, and, and those kinds of things, they decided to sit there and make a case out of it. And then families weren't really involved. And then I got my attorney um, later in the game. I wish I had him from the very start because I did the worst things you do. You know, you, you let them into your house, you open up your heart and tell and tell them everything. You, you, you don't need to let anybody in your house. Uh, they have to have a search warrant uh, and uh, you don't need to tell them anything. You shouldn't tell anything. The more you talk, the more they twist it and use it. And I had a real bad case, social caseworker, you know, um, uh, who um, got a, a second restraining order. And then after I got the second restraining order, she comes over one day and, and insinuates I'm living in the house or I was close by and her story changed and changed. And for a whole year, I had to put up with this crazy story that I violated a restraining order, which was never the case. And eventually the prosecution attorney dropped it, but the damages were done. And, you know, we, we lost our daughter. Uh, she saw how nice it was to get back to where things weren't so hard. And so she left us as a family. So we lost her, but we've got the two boys back. And the, the thing that right now we're trying to do is we're trying to do a lawsuit and I don't understand how a civil lawsuit for a social worker that has done you wrong, the steps that it goes through. I mean, it's like I, I know that the lawsuit's been filed, but my question is, is that what's the next step? Well, one of the first things that people um, always ask or always believe is that they have a good civil rights lawsuit against uh, a social worker. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that bringing a, winning a lawsuit against a social worker can be quite involved, quite complicated, quite difficult. Uh, think, hey, you know what? The social worker did me wrong. I should be able to sue her or him. The problem is, is that in the law, in the federal and state law, Social workers enjoy something called a qualified immunity. And as a mediator in a civil rights lawsuit recently told me, you know, social workers get to be stupid and do make mistakes without getting involved. Excuse me, without getting sued. And what you have to do is you have to prove that the social worker did something with malice bad intentions or purposely lied about something. 
And sometimes that's hard to do. Um, and people say, well, you know, it's obvious she lied. Well, it may be obvious to you because you were involved in the situation, but that doesn't mean it's going to be obvious to a jury or to a judge and you're going to win a lot of money. What happens um, in most of these lawsuits when they're filed, um, after they're filed, they're served, and then the, the social worker's attorney always files motions to dismiss the case. So the first hurdle you have to jump over is getting past what they call the 12B motions. Basically, you write in your complaint what the social worker has done, and then the social worker's attorney, no matter what, comes forward and says, hey, even if what Davis says is true, you can't sue the social workers because of A, B, C, and D. And then you get the the, um, judge, usually a federal judge. We do a lot of our cases in federal court, uh, makes a ruling, and if we get past that stage, um, it's usually, you know, with a reduced complaint. So if we had maybe five or six causes of actions to sue the social worker, it may be dropped down to four or five, three or four, something like that. So you go forward with a reduced complaint. And then um, what happens is there is something called uh, discovery practice for both sides, where both sides formally and informally exchange information about the case. That is done. Um, Usually uh, one of the sides uh, makes a motion for what's called summary judgment. And it's at that motion that the social workers say, well, judge, you know, we had uh, time to do discovery to find out all of the evidence on both sides. And as a matter of law, for example, um, the father doesn't have a civil rights complaint or a civil rights action against the social worker. And if the judge agrees, the judge can throw out the case and you never make it in front of the jury. Now, if that happens, you're entitled to, of course, appeal it. But, you know, that takes a certain amount of time and money, additional money to do that, to appeal a case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, If you survive a summary judgment motion uh, with one or more of your causes of action, you then get a trial, you get to have a trial date, and you get to go to court, and you get to try to prove your case to a federal jury, and In a federal case, you must convince 12 out of 12 people that not only did the social worker violate your civil rights, but that you should be given a certain amount of money. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched or been involved in a trial before, but convincing 12 out of 12 people that you're right and that you should get, you know, a million dollars is – is a difficult task, believe it or not, because the jury, um, especially federal juries, you know, they're usually made up of, uh, you know, middle-class people and who come from all different backgrounds. And, you know, sometimes juries tend to be a little bit anti-plaintiff thinking that, you know, maybe you deserved what happened to you 
maybe I don't want to give you money because you're just trying to hit the jackpot. Uh, you know, all sorts of things go forth in people's minds. Imagine yourself before you were ever involved in a civil rights case. Excuse me, in, involved in a DCFS case. You know, assume you never heard of CPS and you're living your life and one day, you know, you're living your life with your children and one day you get to go on a jury. And there are some people there um, in front of you as a juror who were accused of child abuse, who may have been convicted of child abuse, who may have been um, found to have committed child abuse. And here they are asking you as a juror for a million dollars. Now I can tell you, I'm just going to guess, I can tell you that most people start off anti-plaintiff. They're looking at you thinking, what in the world have you done? You've made me come to court. You've made me be on this jury. And now I have to decide your decision or decide your case. I'm missing my daughter's birthday party. I'm missing a school event. I'm missing work all because you are suing a social worker who appears to be, you know, a public servant doing God's work. So then you have to convince 12 out of 12 that, yes, the social worker did violate your civil rights. And yes, you should be given a large sum of money. So, and then, the, you know, at the end of the case, I mean, and the defendants are on the other side, the social workers, you know, they hire the best attorneys. There are no slouches. You know, they can try to turn anything, anything on top of its head and try to convince a jury, you know, that you are wrong. But even if you're right, you should receive very little money. I remember hearing about a case in uh, Las Vegas where a family of four brought a lawsuit against the social worker. And in the end, the jury said, we think the social worker violated your civil rights, but you only get $1. Can you imagine that? Yes, no, we think the social worker violated one dollar. Okay. Yeah, $1. So that happened. Wow. I mean, I wasn't on the case, but... I heard about this case from Las Vegas um, that went to, to jury trial. Now, these people just think, you know, automatically, social worker did something, I think it's wrong, that equates with a million dollars. That's wrong thinking. That's terribly wrong thinking. And these cases are a lot of work and very difficult. You know, my office um, appeared up in Bakersfield this week on a civil rights case. And um, the mediator, this was a federal civil rights case. And the mediator, I was told, was a current or part-time juvenile dependency judge in the state court. Now, I'll tell you the facts about this case. A a woman who was a foster parent had two children placed with her. And she was having a, a very difficult time with the social worker. 
And it seems like the social worker had a personal vendetta against the foster parent and ends up removing the two children from her home, which she was going to be, um, be adopting. So they had been in her home for quite a while. And she kind of made up a bogus charge. Not kind of, she did. And I think people are acknowledging that she made a bonus char- a bogus charge against the foster parent. Now, there's a lot of other legal issues involved in this scenario, and we won't get into those. But I'm going to ask you, how much do you think if the social worker proved, excuse me, if it was proved that the social worker did something to the children and to the foster parent out of animosity, how much do you think they should get? That's that's a question. That's a hard answer. question, but it's like I lost a lot of finances because of social service. They put me further in debt. I squandered away all my parents' right. uh, um, but you know here, here uh, it is. heritage here, legal but, fees. Yeah, but that I, doesn't but that doesn't mean you're entitled to that money. You think you're entitled to it, but legally you may not be. So in that case, the settlement judge. And the county are offering a whopping thirty. Well, at the mediation, they were offering a whop, a whopping twenty thousand dollars. And a couple of days later, they called and said, "Okay, we'll offer you thirty thousand." So, in other words, yeah, social workers can lie, cheat, and steal, but you know, you don't deserve that much money. Take thirty thousand and please go away. But so, she, so for civil, a whole, what, what I'm what, what I'm trying to tell you is, civil rights cases aren't the pot of gold people think they are. Okay. From a legal perspective, you know, on my YouTube channel, if the listeners want to go to YouTube and put in my name, Vincent Davis, one of the videos that's going to come up is called "What Is Justice." And it's the what is justice video where I'm standing in front of a whiteboard. And one of the things I tell people is, you know, I respect that you have your own sense of justice. But it's not real justice. It's not justice supported by the law. And about 5% of what you believe is true about your case. But by definition, that means 95% of what you believe is not true. But you know how all human beings are, even myself. If we think we know a little bit about something, say 5%, we think that we're 100% right about everything. That's how we are. That's how people are. But In most legal cases, 5% of what you believe is true, 95% of what you believe is false, and you're making decisions about your life, about your children, that's 95% wrong. And the constant struggle between attorneys and their clients is, clients are trying to pull attorneys to their way of thinking, which is 95% wrong, and attorneys are trying to pull the client over to the other side where the attorney is 95% right. The constant struggle. And a lot of times when you talk to clients 
and they hear what I'm saying to them, they want to dismiss it. They don't want to actually accept it as true. Mm-hmm. So to go back to your initial question, once the lawsuit is filed, we go it's served, and then we go through a motion practice where they're going to try to make a motion to basically throw your case out. And if we get past yeah. that, we get to, we get to go to the discovery phase. And if we get past that, they're going to make another motion, a summary judgment motion, to throw your case out. If we survive that, even with one out of the five causes of action, we get to go to trial. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, um, I have a case, a civil rights case, going against the county of Los Angeles, um, where they took kids without a warrant and, and did a whole bunch of crazy stuff. The parents appealed the case, and they won the appeal. And even though the court in the juvenile court in Monterey Park ruled against them, the court of appeal said, hey, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Um, you know, the parents didn't do anything wrong. Give them their kids back immediately. And, you know, the parents alleged that a lot of the stuff that the social worker said was untrue. And apparently the judge at the trial believed a lot of the stuff was untrue. And we're suing the social workers. Now, you think they would want to settle that case. They have a a higher court of court of appeal saying you were wrong in taking these kids. Not only are they fighting it, they have a summary judgment motion pending in a couple of weeks. They haven't offered even a dollar to settle the case. Not one dollar. What they're hoping is that the case be thrown out or chopped up uh, by the federal judge who's hearing the summary judgment motion in a couple of weeks. And then if they, if they don't get it chopped up or thrown out, then they'll come to me and they, say, they will say, okay, you know what, we'll offer you $40,000. I can tell you that the parents and the family in this case are not looking for $40,000. They're looking for a lot of money. So, you know, it's not the pot of gold that a lot of people think. Anyway, I want to thank you for your call. I have to move to uh, the the next call. And I thank you for listening. Keep listening. And I am going to bring on our special guest, Attorney Denise Bowden. Thank you. Good morning. Is this Denise Bowden? Hi. Good morning. How are you? It is. Good. Is this early for you on a Saturday morning? It is a little bit early. (laughs) I'm normally walking my dog. Not the... talking on the radio, but happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a native, first-generation Angelino. My parents were immigrants to this country. My mom from England, my dad from the Caribbean. So I was actually the first in my family to graduate college. Um, And I graduated from UCLA with a political science degree and a sociology degree, and then I went on to Loyola Law School, which I think is your school as, as well. And um, it is. 
something I always knew. I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to work, you know, I wanted to do street, street law. I wanted to do something meaningful that really affected people's lives. And while I was at Loyola, I, I did an internship, which ironically enough ended up dictating my career. It was through the, um, the public council. There was a woman there named Pam Moore. And Pam Moore was a lifelong child rights advocate, and she needed help down in what used to be the um, down in Central in L.A. They had the children's court up in the building, I think, where the criminal courts are now. And yeah. she needed help there, so I did an internship representing kids for her, and um, it really kind of hooked me. So I was working in this dependency system very early on, and then from there, I just targeted one job, and that job was um, in the CPS system, and that was down in San Diego, and, and I got the job of um, deputy county counsel. And for quite some time, I worked down in San Diego as the representative of the social services department, and uh, then I kind of went my own way. I had raised my family a little bit, and then I had my own practice in family law, and then somehow I wound my way back to your office, Mr. Davis, <laughs> and now I'm kind of back where I started. So it's really quite a circle for me. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that you were UCLA and Loyola graduates. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that you, since you worked in San Diego, that you were originally from San Diego. Yeah, no, I I was raised here and um I did a little bit of time in San Diego for school, but I, I didn't uh, stay with it. And I ended up graduating with two degrees out of UCLA. And, um, and then Loyola, and then I went back to San Diego, raised my kids there, and that's when I was working for the county. Yeah. Beautiful there, but L.A. needs a lot more help than San Diego does, let me tell you, <laughs> in terms of the dependency court. Well, how, how long were you with the county council's office in San Diego? I was there uh, originally for seven years on a full-time basis, and then I returned, and after the, my children were born, I took some time off, like I said, but then when I came back, I worked for them for another three years, so a total of 10 years. Wow. That's a long time representing was, social workers. Yes, it was, and I did a lot of different things. Um, I worked in their appellate division for a while. Um, then, of course, I, I wanted to be in the courtroom, so I ended up working mostly as a trial attorney. But, you know, it's very different in San Diego. I mean, my experience here in L.A. County in the dependency system these last couple of years it has really highlighted for me how different it is between the different counties or certainly between San Diego County and L.A. County. Um, you know, in San Diego, there's, first of all, it's a much smaller community, so you don't have the kind of volume that they're dealing with in L.A. Um, and it's a little bit more um, collaborative in the way that they handle their cases, so there's not quite the same amount of um, aggression between the, you know, dug-in positions that the county takes. And then the, the most the most striking difference to me is in San Diego, the county council has a little bit more client control over the social workers. 
Um, and that starts from even the beginning. When they screen the cases, they, they don't go to court without being screened by an attorney. And um, if there's not, you know, the proper evidence, the attorney will reject it and tell the county, you know, you can't file this, it's junk. And I find in L.A. that it's very different when they don't have the attorney screening in the same way. So it was really kind of a different environment down there. Um, you know, it's still quite, it's obviously I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of the cases down there. It's still, you know, pretty, um, they're pretty aggressive. They go by the same mantra that, you know, it's kind of a big system rolling over the small people. I think that that would be accurate for any of the counties. Um, but it was a little more, a little bit more pleasant to work down there in yeah. terms of being in the, in the trenches. <laughs> Were you ever involved in any cases in the county um, that made it to the newspaper or made it through a lawsuit or anything? Yes, absolutely. Um, we had one case that ended up being such a travesty of justice that a grand jury was impaneled. And um, I personally wasn't involved in it, but it was an active case during my tenure there. Some of the senior deputies were involved, and it was a situation where the social workers had, I can't say purposefully, as I recall, I think it was just very sloppy and uh, very unprofessional and, you know, border, it clearly gross negligence um, on the part of working with a young child on a sexual molest case, a sexual abuse case. And at the end of the day, they found that the, um, the parent had gone to jail and the child had been taken from the family and was already through an adoption. And they found that it was all um, really manipulation of the child and that it had not occurred. And a grand jury was impaneled to review the whole case. And from that grand jury report, major changes were made within the county of San Diego. I mean, I think they had 25 different recommendations, and uh, the county obviously took it very seriously. It was a massive lawsuit, and I, I don't really recall what happened to the child. I'm sure that he was reintegrated back into his family. That one stands out. And then there was one that I did that was more of a media frenzy kind of a case, and that was a, that was horrific. That was a torture murder of a child. Um, and the unique thing was that the child lived in the home with multiple other siblings that were going to school every day and the neighbors would see the other children. They never knew there was this little girl in the house. She was the one child for some reason was targeted. And that case brought a tremendous amount of media because the prosecution for the district attorney was doing a double death penalty prosecution on it. And I had the task of keeping the siblings, the surviving siblings, from having to testify in the criminal case against their parents. And so that was, oh gosh, that was a five-day motion of unavailability of children that we did down in the criminal courts. So that was quite a media wow. movie. Yeah. It was very, very interesting. And I, that case left me and went up to the Supreme Court, and I, I lost it there. I don't really know what happened to it because at that time I had um, retired from the county and moved on. 
Were you ever interviewed by any uh, media? Was I myself introduced by media? No, I was um, asked to do so, and we took a position that we were not going to be going public in any way because we represented the children. I was advocating for the children at that point, and we determined that um, the best position to take was one of just these are confidential cases and we won't be sharing anything. And so um, there were requests, but I would be the one that would just walk right by all the cameras and go straight to my car. <laughs> Let me tell you, the DA, the district attorney did stand in front of those cameras. It was funny because I won that motion. Um, it had a lot of constitutional issues that were involved. As you can imagine, it had um, the parents, the, the parents who were being prosecuted and facing the death penalty, it was their right of being to, able to confront and cross-examine the witnesses, the children, versus, versus the children's need to be protected from, A, having to relive the horrific circumstances that they had observed, and they were very emotionally damaged, these kids, as you can imagine, and protect them from being the star witnesses against their own parents who would likely be given the death penalty. And so that really for us represented an untenable situation for young children. These kids were, I think they were seven and nine. We're gonna be spending the rest of their lives knowing that their testimony is what killed their own parents. And I just felt that that was too much for a child to bear. And so we won the motion and um, it was appealed. And like I said, I'm not sure what what ended up happening with it. I should look that up. No, wait. Let me, let me get this straight. Two criminal defendants are facing the death penalty, and okay. the trial court agreed with you that the star witnesses didn't have to testify? That's correct, because they were children who I made the motion that they were um, unavailable. And, of course, as you know, unavailability is a very technical term. Um, Clearly, they were physically available. They could have shown up to court, but the idea was to prove that it would have done such emotional and mental harm to them to testify against their parents in the, the death penalty case that um, based on their presentation at that time, and they were obviously struggling, they were not available. And the court found that, and the court held that there was plenty of other evidence, forensic and otherwise, the district attorney had quite a strong case without them and that he made the district attorney go forward without their evidence, without their testimony. And I thought it was a brave thing for the court to do, but he showed that he was there to protect the kids and, and we all appreciated that. Wow. I would have guessed that, you know, two people facing the death penalty could have called the kids as witnesses. Yeah. Or cross-examine them. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and what was interesting to me also this was that the, the district attorney was fighting me and wanted to call them, of course, to prove their case. But I pointed out because it was clear that their mandate of prosecuting these people and winning um, did not include worrying about the children. So it was good in that case. There were, if if our if, the, if if there was no representation for the children, which there normally wouldn't be in a criminal case, um, 
then the outcome would have been different for those kids. Now, let me ask you something. Now, here's an interesting question. Didn't you guys have a conflict of interest? Well, if we did, no one brought it up, and um, and no, I don't I don't see where we would have. Remember, I was representing the social services at that point, and because they're not technically a prosecuting agency, that their mandate is to protect the remaining children. Part of that was clear to us that that involved protecting these kids emotionally. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. So can you can you tell our audience, we'll switch wheels here for a second, can you tell our audience about um, what you do with, here at uh, my firm? Sure. Um, well, I'm a, an attorney defending, well, I can't say defending, sometimes it's defending because we represent a lot of parents, obviously, um, but we also represent relatives um, who want to have children placed with them or have some kind of position that they want to take in the case. Um, and so I do trial all day long, every day, in, in whatever county far flung you send me to. Um, so we work in Orange County, San Diego, um, San Bernardino. I've got a case active right now in Santa Barbara. I know that uh, I haven't myself, but we go up to Santa Clara County and all over this Bay Area. And we just um, you know, represent those that feel that the public attorney that they were appointed for some reason or another did not get the job done. I think that you know, very often we're hired at the beginning of a case before there's the public defender appointed. Um, and I think obviously that's the best way to go because then you have consistency. And I you know, fight all day long in court and do what I can to keep kids within their family systems, you know, hopefully get them home, and if not home, get them to relatives. And do, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. How do you find, uh, how do you find it, or how do you feel about representing these different types of people in these cases? Um I mean, personally, I love it. it. It gives me energy. I really enjoy it. Um, it's very difficult sometimes. You know, the system is large and the wheel turns heavy. So um, it's, but, but you get kind of energized with um, feeling kind of like a David and Goliath kind of thing. You know, I mean, a lot of the clients that we have, as you know, um, don't have an awful lot of power. Um, and they're coming into a system that's confusing, and I and I think intentionally confusing. I think the way that the front end is run is, um, frankly, you know, you and I haven't talked about this, but I think it's a travesty how a person can come into the system in shock of having their killed kids pulled out of their home and suffer and whatever brought that to bear. You know, sometimes they've been victims of crime, you know, in domestic violence cases. Sometimes they're you know, have a drug addiction problem. Sometimes it's just baloney and they're falsely accused. So the parent is traumatized. And at that moment of impact, they're faced with a system that sometimes they have two, three, four different social workers coming at them. They, I mean, they don't know if they're coming or going. And um, and I think that's 
that's a real problem with our system. And um, I enjoy the battle. You know, I like to help give them some strength that I feel otherwise, you know, they, they would not have just, just because the learning curve at the front end is so difficult. By the time the parents have figured out what's going on, you know, we're past the disposition hearing and the petition's been sustained. So I like the fight. I, it energizes me. It makes me feel good that we're doing something right. And yeah, I also have this that, that if that if we um if we continue to take them to task, you know, chipping away, chipping away, that at some point they're gonna change their ways, you know, at least alter them and learn a better way to handle things. Not the parent, the system. The system will learn how to do it properly. I wish I could agree with you, but I don't. I think it's just so massive and entrenched that nothing will ever change. Well, that, that leads me to one of my, what I was going to ask you last, but let me ask you now. What would you change about the system? Oh, boy, that's a long list. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, on kind of a micro level, one of the first things I would do is I would I would go back to that screening of petitions thing. I, I would not have social workers writing their own petitions. They're, they're ridiculous. Um, they're not only half the time not legally written correctly, they're confusing and they're, they're overbroad and they're, they don't have proper evidence. They won't meet the legal standards that they're going to be challenged in court. I think I would have the, a screening system where it would have to be run by the attorneys. So you'd really filter out quite a lot of the petitions that were filed. Because essentially what that means is that when a social worker thinks there's a case and thinks they have enough evidence for that case, they would have to bring it to an attorney, a county counsel. And that attorney would look at it and be able to say, no, this is not enough. You don't have the evidence for this. Either go out and get it and come back or you don't have a case. And I think that that level of proper screening would cut out, you know, 30% of our cases would go off the table right there. And that's a, a small estimate, in my opinion. And that's then, a large, yeah, so that's that's a large number. Well, I think that there's that many that are just bogus. I mean, I'm working on one now where, it, sadly, unfortunately, this woman was – there was a petition. This is a classic example. There was a petition filed on a woman who was homeless. She lost her children. I don't know what the call or referral was, but the police came to where she was on the street with two children and took them from her on the street. She began to be hysterical, as any young mother would be. And in her hysteria, she screamed, how can you do this? I want to die. I want to die. I'm going to kill myself. How can you do this? Based on those words, the police took her to the emergency room and asked for a 5150 or a mental health evaluation to see if she was suicidal. She was observed overnight and had a full psychiatric examination, and that psychiatric examination came out that she was perfectly healthy, had no mental health issues. 
the petition that they filed within the 48-hour window, she was in court facing a petition that the first count alleged she had long-standing mental health issues and suicide ideation, despite the fact there was zero history of that. And the second count was that she was unable to provide shelter for her children. We were not her attorneys at the time. Both of those counts never should have gotten past screening because there was no medical backup for their mental health allegation. It should have been rejected. Go get me a diagnosis is what should have been told to that social worker. But they didn't. They just filed it as it was. And unfortunately, I believe that this woman, um, not to disparage the hard work that a lot of our colleagues do that work for the, you know, the appointed attorney panel. I mean, there's a lot of great attorneys in there. While this woman did not get the luck of the draw, she obviously got someone who didn't challenge it. And not only did the petition go through and be sustained that she had mental health issues, but the second count that she was homeless went through. And frankly, homelessness is not a petitionable action. You know, uh, it's not a petitionable item that they can sustain a petition on. And somehow that happened. And so she has spent the last two years trying to prove she's not insane and she's stable. She has housing. It was a temporary moment for her to be without housing. And she hired our firm right before the hearing where they're trying to adopt her children out. And I feel that the screening process done properly, that never should have happened. And, of course, we're doing everything we can for her. We have a whole toolbox of motions we're trying. But um, that's why I, I say the screening needs to occur. You see petitions like that all the time that are just garbage. And then I think I would, um, you know, there's some structural changes. I, I think I would have more training for the social workers. I think I would have, you know, every six months training for them so that they're, you know, staying on top of their um, understanding of the different dynamics of their society kind of evolves. I don't think that they do evolve very well. Um, you know, changes like that I think would be helpful. What do you think about jury trials? Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, first of all, I don't think our system can handle it. I mean, I, I've heard the number, Vincent, you would probably know better. I've heard the number that we're up to forty to 50,000 active cases in L.A. County. I mean, maybe there's more, but um, I can't, I, I don't know how they could do that. It might overwhelm the system, but I believe in theory, maybe a system where we could, you know, opt for a jury trial, have that as an option if wanted, would be incredible. I think if the public knew some of the some of the stuff that was going on, I think it would be incredible. Uh, frankly, I would support that. I would support that. The excuse for not having them is to protect the child's identity and confidentiality, and I think there's a way we could work around that with juries. Um, but I believe that there are many reasonable minds who would be appalled at some of the things that go on. Yes, I could support jury trials. I don't see you know, that coming one, to pass, do you? Um, you know, there was always a movement underground at the grassroots level 
generally by parents and relatives about getting mm-hmm. juries involved in these cases. I don't know if you know this, but some states do allow jury trials in juvenile cases. Did you know that? Did you know no, that? No, I wasn't aware. No, I was not aware of that. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I think the numbers. I think the number is like five or six, and mm-hmm. the. I think what I read was that even in those states, people don't take advantage of it. Now, I don't think that would be the same in Los Angeles, but um, one of yeah. the big negatives about offering jury trials is the money. It would be quite expensive uh, to impanel jurors, you know, for these types of cases. And that's one of the biggest, you know, um, things that's keeping it away, keeping it away from, you know, being the law in California. Um, Mm -hmm. If you think about it, the the things you have to do in order to have a jury trial are, you know, there's a million and one things, and um, they're they're just not uh, they're just not willing to do it. You know, in some states, I've heard that they they allow jury trials in family law cases under, for certain oh, that's, issues. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you know, limiting it to certain custody. issues mm-hmm. could be interesting. For custody. example, the, the go ahead. Oh, I was saying for family law, it's like custody and visitation, things like that. But you were saying. <laughs> You, you I would think for be certain supportive. issues, yeah, mm-hmm. for certain issues, having a jury um, for those extreme consequences, you know, the extreme termination of parental rights. I mean, it's just somebody mentioned the other day, a colleague said that's really the death penalty of a family. It's so severe. Right. And I think that our system just does it at the drop of a hat. I mean, sometimes it, they do it in such a flip dismissive manner, it's almost like they don't comprehend um, what they've done to that parent, to that parent and that family, ultimately. <clears throat> yeah, I'd like to right. see jury trial. But like you, I, I just think our system's too big. I can't see it happening. <laughs> and then also, the exposure of what would be shown would be pretty stark. I think the, the public would be appalled. I don't mean by the child abuse. I I don't mean by the child abuse. I think people have an understanding that there are horrific things that happen to children, and I think, you know, certainly that would be, you know, exposed. But I think my point was what they would see that the county is getting away with would be appalling. Right, right. Well, Denise, I have to end our interview. We're running out of time this morning. But I want to thank you for calling in. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was fun. All righty. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, thank you for listening in on our show today. We're running out of time. I want you to uh, check out our website, fightchildprotectiveservices.com. There's videos there. Check me out on YouTube. Uh, Vincent W. Davis, and I have a lot of instructional uh, videos there. And also um, call in to my office, 888-888-6582, and we'll mail you a copy of my book, The Secret, How to Fight Child Protective Services and When. 
We'll see you next week on the radio.